uh, last week at the role of the wife, and uh, <clears throat> I made the husband's promise, you have to come this week to listen to what God has to say about your responsibility and role, and then uh, actually I'm going to give the husbands a double dose because you get it this week, and then next time also uh, I'm going to be gone next Sunday. Uh, we're going to be going up to the North Rim this afternoon, but um, when I get back, the second part of this message on Christ-like love for your wife And there should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at all the exits and also on the church website, the printed and eventually the audio messages are on there for your um, use as well. Our text this morning is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. And there's so much here that, as I said, it's going to take a couple times to work through it. But we're going to begin this morning, so if you have a Bible, turn there, otherwise it'll be up on the screen. And uh, Paul's word is as follows. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And then Paul cites uh, the text that I used in the first message, uh, Galatians, I mean Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Do you love your wife? Well, every Christian man knows the right answer to that question. Of course, I do, but... The answer really partly depends on how you define love. Some of us old-timers may remember a popular song a number of years ago by Carol King where she said, I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky come tumbling down. Uh, I uh, feel my heart start to trembling whenever you're around. And uh, if you've been married as I have for a few decades, you might kind of scratch your head and say, Yeah, I vaguely remember feeling like that a long time ago. But chances are, if you've been married a long time, that didn't describe your feelings this past week. Um, Not many marriages can be described like that after many years. But if we shift the notion from feeling the earth move under your feet to the Apostle Paul and his inspired command in verse 25, he says, 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the question becomes, well, now, how does your love for your wife compare to that standard? And I don't care how long you've been married and how happy your marriage is. I'm going to argue there's some room to grow because none of us match the perfect standard of Christ's love for our wives. Now, my comments today are going to focus on the husband because the text does. But I would remind you that Jesus said that we all, male and female, single and married, we all are to love others even as he loved us. In fact, just up the chapter there in Ephesians 5.2, Paul commands the entire church to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so the things I say today are relevant to every Christian as we grow in Christ-like love for others, but especially, especially um, Paul aims his message at the husband. And so he's saying here that sacrificial, purposeful, Christ-like love should characterize every husband's relationship with his wife. As verse 32 states, uh, the marriage, Christian marriage, is an earthly picture of the relationship between Christ, our heavenly bridegroom, and we, the church, his bride. And it's not by accident that the enemy attacks Christian marriages because the world is looking on, and if they see in us the love of Christ, it should be distinct from the kind of stuff we see out in the world or on TV or in the movies and all of that kind of thing. Um, Christian marriage should be that picture. But when a Christian marriage breaks up, it sends a false message to the world. Namely, Christ doesn't love his bride, and Christ is willing to forsake his bride and go pick up with a new one who's a little better. And that's a false message. And so, although what Paul is writing here will give us all help in how to have a happy marriage, that's not the main bottom line. It's here for a much greater purpose, and that is that we would glorify our Lord and Savior through marriages that reflect Christ's sacrificial love for his bride, the church. Now, the first thing to note is that love, then, is a command, it's the command given here, for the husband. Love is the command. Uh, That means authority is not the command. And I would venture if you ask many Christian husbands, if they weren't just tuned into this text, uh, what is your main responsibility toward your wife? They would say, well, to be the head of my home. And that is an important responsibility, but it's not a command. It's stated as a fact in verse 23. uh, And when you get just after reading verse 23, the husband's the head of the wife, you would think when he gets to verse 25, Paul would say, husbands, exercise headship over your wife as you should. He doesn't say that. In fact, he never says that. What he says is, husbands, love your wives. Be continually loving your wives. It's a present tense command. 
And so while wives are to love their husbands, I mean, after all, the Bible even says love your enemies, right? I hope that's not the case with your husband. But uh, worst case scenario, you still got to love your husband. But I think what Paul is saying here is it is the husband's unique role to set an atmosphere, a climate of love in his home as he demonstrates Christ-like love for his wife. Also note that material possession is not the command here in our text. Again, I think many American husbands would say, well, my role is to, you know, bring home the bacon. I work hard. I provide for my wife and kids, and that's how I show them that I love them. And they put in long hours at their job. Uh, The truth is, I think many men find it easier to give things to their family than to give them themselves their time, their deep, loving relationship. And while Paul does say elsewhere, 1 Timothy 5.8, that if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever and is denied the faith, which is a serious um, statement. At the same time there, Paul isn't talking about giving your family an ever-increasing level of affluence, as we tend to think in America, but rather simply providing the basics, food and covering and basic needs. And here, though, in our text, again, Paul doesn't say, husbands, provide for your wives. He says, husbands, love your wives. So that means, secondly, that love then is possible for every husband. It's possible for two reasons. First of all, it's possible because it's commanded, and God never gives us command without giving us the ability through his spirit to obey the command. And the command in our text follows on verse 18, just above, where Paul um, commands all of us, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means to be continually under the Spirit's control. And as you know, the very first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. When the Spirit controls us, he produces love in us, and that enables us to love as Christ loved his church. And while we'll never do it perfectly in this life, as we walk in the Spirit, we should be growing in Christ-like love for our mate. Now, the fact that God commands through Paul, commands us to love our wives, also means that an excuse that I've heard uh, is not going to cut it. And that is, I used to love her. You know, I mean, we, we were in love once, but boy, after years of living with this woman, I just don't feel any love for her anymore. And often that's said in the context of, I'm moving on down the road to someone else. Uh, Falling in love is kind of like, you know, falling off a surfboard. I mean, it's pretty easy, pretty effortless. Staying in love is kind of like staying on the surfboard. That's a little harder, and it takes some concentrated effort and deliberate focus in order to do that. And, you know, if your marriage has degenerated into bitterness and anger and blaming and the way a lot of marriages go, then you're going to have to work harder at obeying this command. But my point is, no matter how much the marriage has degenerated, 
if you'll obey the command, the feelings can follow. Um, Some of you are familiar with the little four spiritual law booklet where it shows that we don't run our lives by feelings, but by faith in the fact of God's word. And in the diagram, the engine of the train is fact, God's what God says. The coal car that feeds the engine is faith, and the feelings are the caboose that follows. And that's really true, that when we obey God by faith, uh, the, the feelings will catch up. They will come, but you can't reverse it. And so it's possible, even if your marriage is in a shambles, to begin to practice Christ-like love for your wife. A second reason love is possible is because here it's commanded to men from every conceivable kind of background. Um, We saw last time that the command for wives to be subject to their husbands is not a culturally conditioned command. It's true in all cultures and all times, properly understood. And the same here. Love for wives is not just something that changes with culture. Many of the men in the Ephesian church had come to faith out of a raw pagan background. Ephesus was known for its grandiose temple to Diana, who was the goddess of the Ephesians. And there was both male and female prostitution there that Uh, men would enter into as an act of so-called worship to this pagan deity. And um, many of these men, too, were married to women who they hadn't chosen. Their parents arranged marriages. And so they had a a whole different viewpoint of Christian marriage. Um, The Greek writer Demosthenes describes the common mentality of pagan men in those days, he said, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day needs of the body, uh, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. And so you can imagine how countercultural it was for Paul to speak to men coming out of that kind of milieu and say to them, you are to be devoted exclusively, solely to your wife in a lifelong covenant marriage uh, and not to be involved with other women. It was radical. And I believe it's still radical in our day with the way our culture is going, but that is God's standard. And my point is this, even if there's been unfaithfulness in the marriage, even if there is severe bitterness and anger and all of that, I believe that there is hope for that marriage when a husband turns the corner and begins to love as Christ loved his church. Uh, Not always, it's not 100%, but it can work a dramatic change in a marriage. Now, to apply this command, we have to be clear again on what Paul means by love. Because it's not really feeling the earth move under your feet when you see her. Uh, It's a little deeper than that. And I have crafted this definition. Love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. In other words, love is sacrificing. Love is purpose purposeful, 
And I got that definition just by thinking about what Paul says here in this text, as well as other places, such as Ephesians 5.2, where Christ-like love is described. Um, Let me show you where it comes right out of our text. First, love is self-sacrificing, just as he says in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Secondly, love is caring. Uh, A man nourishes and cherishes his own flesh, as Christ does the church in verse 29. Uh, Thirdly, love is a commitment. It's implied by the command to love. You can't command feelings. You can command a commitment. And it's also implied by Christ's covenant love for his people, that he doesn't let us go. He's committed to us. And just by the analogy of the body, the wife is a part of the husband's body, Paul says. Well, we're all committed to preserving and protecting our own bodies. And so that's implied. And then love shows itself, and by that I mean it's not just a nice thought, it's action. And Christ didn't sit in heaven and uh, just think about us, but he went to the cross to bear our sin. And then finally, love seeks the highest good of the one loved. And uh, that's what Christ did for us. He died for us so that, it says, he might sanctify and cleanse us to present us to himself uh, in all our glory, holy and blameless before him. And so the definition comes right out of the text. If you can come up with a better one, I encourage you to do so. But I would encourage you to memorize a good definition of Christian love because our culture bombards us through media that love is uh, not that way, you know, it kind of hits you like the flu out of nowhere, and you think, man, I'm in love, and then just like the flu, it goes away without your control, and you can't hang on to it, and I think it was Carol King had another song of, it's too late, baby, now it's too late, we really tried to make it, but something has gone, and I just can't fake it, and that's the, the world's view of love. And the biblical view of love is that um, it is a command. Now, I don't mean to imply that there's no chemistry. Uh, If a couple isn't attracted to one another, I would not advise marriage. Uh, But what I'm saying is love is deeper than that. And to sustain it and develop it and deepen it over the long haul, you've got to go according to that definition. So I want to explore the text in more depth by presenting 10 contrasts to explain practically what biblical love looks like, and we'll only be able to cover two of them this morning. Uh, Next time, we'll go over the other uh, eight in the next message. But the first one is this. Love is sacrificial. It is not selfish. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 25. So he's our standard. He didn't sit in heaven and uh, bark commands to us on earth, but at, at great personal cost to himself, he laid aside his glory, took on the form of a servant, was obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And there he bore God's wrath for us. And so 
as Charles Wesley exclaims in that great hymn, uh, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, maybe as a guy, you're thinking, well, you know, I'd die for my wife if it came down to that. Sure. I mean, if somebody was attacking her, I'd go for his gun. Even if it killed me, I would fight for her life. And I hope that's true. But the more important question is this. Are you crucifying self every day on behalf of your wife? Are you crucifying self every day on behalf of your wife to see her be all that God wants her to be? Or to put it another way, is your focus on using her to meet your needs? Or is your focus on how can I meet her needs, even at cost to myself? Martin Lloyd-Jones has over a hundred pages on these verses on Christian marriage in his uh, book, Life in the Spirit, his treatment of Ephesians. But he makes this very uh, thoughtful comment. He says, the real cause of failure, ultimately, in marriage is always self. The real cause of failure in marriage, ultimately, is always self and the various manifestations of self. Of course, that's the the cause of trouble everywhere and in every realm. Self and selfishness are the greatest disrupting forces in the world. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, what about my wife? Well, yeah, she needs to practice self-sacrificing love to you because all Christians must love one another. But my point again here is, husbands, it's up to us to set the climate in our home of going first, of really leading in love, setting a loving atmosphere. And I have just encountered so many guys who don't daily sacrifice their rights, their comfort, their pleasures, their pursuits, or their time for the sake of their wives. They're, they're, in other words, they're very self-centered. I'm doing this. She can take it or leave it, but that's what I'm doing. And they just live for themselves, not considering putting their wife and her well-being first. And if you're doing that, then you aren't loving her sacrificially. And again, a lot of guys say, well, I'm the head of my home. They're going to do it my way. That's selfishness. That's not what headship means. It's not what it means at all. And so again, Paul doesn't say, be the head of your home, guys. He says, Love your wife as Christ loved the church, sacrificially. Let me get more practical. You come home from work. You're tired. You think, I deserve some rest. I've worked hard all day for this family. And, uh, you know, I uh, don't want to be bugged. And so instead of doing that, that's a formula for self-centeredness. Instead of doing that, as you drive home, Shift your thinking and say, Lord, thank you for giving me the wonderful wife you've given me. And uh, Lord, show me how I can lift her up, how I can minister to her. And Lord, I pray for her that she'd be growing in you. And uh, so you, you enter the door with that mindset of how can I serve? Now, if she shows up with your slippers and your paper and says, relax, great, that's fine. But 
you know, if you walk in the door and the, the kids are going berserk and, and the phone is ringing and the dishes are piled up in the sink and the trash needs taken out, and in other words, the poor lady needs some help, uh, you don't sit down and turn on the tube and block out the family. You say, I'm on. I'm on. I need to serve my family. And you, again, uh, try to set aside your rights and serve your wife out of love. So the main point is love is sacrificial. It's not selfish. And then also another second contrast, love is purposeful, not aimless, uh, effortless ecstasy. Paul gives us Christ's purpose in giving himself for his church in verses 26 and 27, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Again, the world just kind of views love as this effortless, thing as I compared it falling off a surfboard or catching the flu or something you know you don't know how you got it and sadly you don't know how you lost it and you just kind of go with the flow but the world would say if you have to think about it and invest effort in it then it's not the real deal that's totally contrary to biblical love Uh, it's not spontaneous and it's not unplanned it involves effort to achieve a purpose. Christ didn't achieve his aims for his bride just through effortless spontaneity. He came to earth for a purpose, to die for our sins. And at great personal cost, he did that, that we would be all that God wants us to be. So first of all, then, married love has an exclusive purpose. It says that he might sanctify her, and that means set her apart unto God for his purpose, for God's purpose. In the Bible, there are three senses of that word sanctify. There is what we might call positional sanctification, and that is the moment we trust Christ, God sets us apart unto him. We no longer belong to ourselves. We now are set apart unto Christ. Then there is progressive sanctification, the process that I hope we're all involved in, And that is, progressively, we grow to be more like Christ over time. And then, thankfully, someday there will be perfect sanctification because 1 John 3.2 says, the minute we see Jesus, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. All sin will be gone. At that point, we will be perfectly set apart unto God, sanctified. Now, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, probably refers to the first sense, our positional sanctification that took place at the moment of salvation. And in that sense, it has in mind the exclusivity of our relationship to Christ. Christ set his church apart from the world exclusively unto himself. And, uh, you know, when we do wedding ceremonies, sometimes young couples will say, forsaking all others, I... Uh, give myself or devote myself to you alone. That's the sense of our, our relationship with Christ. We exclusively belong to him. Now, what that means for husbands in practical terms is you have to put a protective fence around your marriage. You are exclusively devoted to your wife. 
no flirting with other women. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit controversial and say I think it's dangerous and inappropriate for a married man to have a close friendship with a woman other than his wife unless the wife is included in every contact. In other words, I sometimes see guys that go out to, to lunch with a close female friend, not their wife. I just think that's uh, looking for trouble. Uh, I won't do that. If, if Marla's along or if it's a group thing and we're all together, fine, but uh, I just don't want to go there. I also don't need to, shouldn't need to say it, but I will. You should not be looking at other women lustfully, uh, thinking about them lustfully. You should not look at pornography. Um, you know, there's a sense in which Jesus loves all people, but there's this exclusive sense Christ loved his church. And I love all ladies. You're all wonderful. But I don't love you like I love my wife. She's mine, and I love her exclusively, and that's the sense in which we need that devotion to our bride, to our wife. A second point is that married love then has a purifying purpose. Christ cleansed her, it says, by the washing of water with the word, and that refers to the cleansing that takes place at the moment of salvation uh, when Jesus' blood cleanses us from all our sins. And so sanctifying refers to being set apart unto him. Cleansing refers to washing away all of our sins. And many scholars understand the washing of water with the word to refer to baptism and the word of consecration that accompanies that ritual. That may be so. Um, Baptism, again, a, a picture of our being cleansed from all our sin. Uh, Paul may have been thinking about uh, Jewish brides would take a ritual bath before their wedding. That may be what he's talking about, or I have a hunch he was thinking of Ezekiel chapter 16. There's a kind of a um, graphic portrayal there where the Lord says, I found you uh, wallowing in your blood, and I cleansed you off, and I clothed you with the clothes of a queen and made you my bride. And it's a picture of God's love for Israel in her sin, that God cleansed her and made her his wife and so on. But the picture, again, is a purifying purpose. The word here is a Greek word that means the spoken word, not the printed word, although could refer to both, but it probably refers to the gospel and the fact that it is through the message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he offers eternal life and, and forgiveness of all your sins when you trust in him and receive that free gift, that at that moment uh, we become his purified bride set apart unto him. So the application to husbands is this, that our commitment to our wife should be for her total well-being that we want to see her be all that God wants her to be. And you don't do that by preaching. You do that by example. Do you have a morning time, guys, where you get up and spend time in the Word? That broadcast to your family, that's priority. And 
Would you follow me in my example and do likewise? Encourage your wife to spend time in God's word. Talk to her about what is she getting out of it. Pray with her, pray for her often that she might grow in godliness. Talk together as husband and wife about the things of God. Um, share with her, you know, your ups and downs and your walk with the Lord. But um, <clears throat> one thing Marla and I like to do when we take a trip is just listen to praise music. And often I'll put on a CD of someone's sermon and listen to that, talk to it about it together. Um, another thing to do, guys, is protect your wife from all the moral filth that's flooding into our homes through TV, through videos, uh, movies, DVDs. There's just so much crud, and that stuff defiles. Don't watch those kind of movies. Just, you don't need that. It's not going to help either of you grow in Christ. And so the idea, again, is your, your purpose for your wife is exclusive. It's purifying. And then thirdly, married love has an edifying purpose. And the picture in verses 26 and 27 is the Lord building up his church so that we'll be holy and blameless. And that's been his purpose from before we were even born. Because back in Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, Just as he, the Lord, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And that purpose means the Lord never does anything to tear us down. He never does anything to attack us or uh, put us down in any way. Sometimes, yes, he has to discipline. But in Hebrews, it says that he does it in love that we might share his holiness. And, of course, the application for Christian husbands is there's never any place for any abusive words, abusive um, actions, any ridicule, anything that puts down your wife is out of bounds. That's not what you're to be doing. But rather, you're to be building her up. Yes, at times you might have to gently correct, but your goal is that she would become a woman who truly fears the Lord. As it says in Proverbs 31.30, Charm is, is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Or 1 Peter 3, 4 says um, that we should encourage our wife to develop the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So love has that exclusive purpose, it has a purifying purpose, and it has a, a building up, an edifying purpose purpose. We'll have to save the other eight contrasts for next time, but let me just conclude by urging all husbands to focus on two things. First of all, immerse yourself often in the wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross. See, Paul isn't writing this to give little self-help tips that could appear in Reader's Digest about how to have a happy marriage. Paul is rooting his theology of marriage in the theology of the cross. Christ died for us as our heavenly bridegroom. And we are to sacrifice ourselves for our bride, our wives. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he points out, his argument is clearly this. 
It is only as we realize the truth about the relationship of Christ and the church uh, to the church that we can really function as Christian husbands ought to function. And when daily you spend time before the Lord and you're overwhelmed with the fact that Christ, the mighty maker, died for my sin, that humbles you and it puts you in the point of a servant to your family where then it'll spill over into self-sacrificing love for your wife. So every day just take time to think about what Christ did at the cross. And then secondly... Take time during the week, and a good time to do it is maybe as you're driving home from work, to think about how can you show self-sacrificing, purposeful, Christ-like love to your wife, and be as specific and practical as you can be. Maybe it's just a simple thing of walking in and saying, hey, how'd your day go, and listening when she tells you. Um... Maybe she needs help with the chores, or maybe she needs a break from the kids, or whatever. But my point is, if you aren't deliberately thinking about it, and I'm speaking from experience, you revert to selfish mode. That's just our default. I have to deliberately think, if I were in her shoes, dealing with what she's dealing with, how would I feel loved? And how can I do that toward her? And so your love for her then should not be selfish, it should be sacrificial. And it shouldn't be just aimless, but rather purposeful that you want her to be all that God wants her to be. And it's based not because you want a happy marriage, although that's the result. It's because you want to glorify the Lord through your marriage. The Lord who gave himself on the cross for you so that as the world looks at your relationship, they're going to go, wow, they're different. They're different. What is it? And then you can tell them. Back in 1990, there was a man named Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. He's with the Lord now, but he was then the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, and he surprised many in the Christian world when he resigned his position to care for his wife, Muriel, who was advancing in in Alzheimer's disease. He was in his early 60s. He could have served a lot longer in his position. His wife was so bad she could no longer communicate in complete sentences, and even the phrases she used were were nonsensical often. And so she needed round-the-clock care, And since she was only going to grow worse, some of McQuilkin's lifelong trusted godly friends urged him, put her in an institution and continue your ministry. But McQuilkin became convinced that it was his joyful and loving responsibility to care for his wife. And so he resigned. He was startled by the public response to his decision. Um, He heard of couples that were renewing their marriage vows. He heard of pastors who, like I'm doing here, told their congregation about his story. And it was a mystery to him as to why this is such a big deal. Why is this attracting so much attention until 
an oncologist friend of his, a doctor who dealt with dying cancer patients all the time, said to him, almost all women stand by their men. Very few men stand with their women or by their women. And I believe, men, God is calling us to stand by our wives. And we do that by loving them as Christ loved the church. He loved us sacrificially. He loved us on purpose that we might share his glory. And that's how we are to love our wives. Let's pray. If you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that's where you begin with God. Contrary to popular notions, you don't become a Christian by cleaning up your life and trying to be a good person. You become a Christian by coming to Christ as a sinner who is guilty, who deserves judgment, but you receive his free gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins by his undeserved favor. The Bible calls it grace alone. And you can do that just in your heart by saying, Lord God, I have sinned and I need Jesus to forgive my sin. And then when we're born again through faith in Christ, his Holy Spirit comes to live within us and give us the power to love as we should love. Father, I pray that all of us as husbands would take to heart this very practical, pointed command of the Apostle Paul and begin to love our wives as you love your church and that our homes would radiate the joy, the love, the peace of Christ to a world that desperately needs that message. And we ask for Jesus' sake, amen.